Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Who can stand before God's throne? What an important question for us to ask, and it's a question that we're actually going to wrestle with this morning. And uh, as a spoiler alert, the answer is that the only people who can stand before his throne are those who are dressed in his righteousness alone. So I'm excited to open up the Word of God with you this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 15. And I want to start by asking you, what is the most important question that you've ever wrestled with? The most important question that you've ever had to answer for yourself? Maybe it's what career you should pursue or maybe where you should live. Maybe it's where you should go to school or who you should marry. Maybe even what church you should attend. And those are all important questions. They're all questions that we should in fact be asking and wrestling with in our lives. But none of those questions, none of them are more important than the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning, the question that we're going to see here in Psalm 15, which is who can dwell with God? Who is worthy to enter or to stand or even to remain in God's presence? David himself wrestled with this question, and that's what we're going to see in Psalm 15. In fact, the title of this morning's message is Living in God's Presence. Living in God's Presence. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 15. If you don't have one, there's some out in the lobby. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that. It's yours. But follow along as I read Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile man or vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. That's the word of God for us this morning. And before we go any further, allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are, your majesty, your power, your sovereignty. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And God, we pray that this morning we would be focused, that we could put aside the distractions, that we would, uh, that we would, uh, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our our minds and our hearts to to to, to understand and to love and to apply your word this morning. So God, help us to see what you have for us, and may your word do the work for which you send it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the text this morning that we're looking at, it's actually not all that complicated theologically. It's laid out fairly simple, but it carries great weight, not to mention it's quite convicting. 
but it carries great weight for how we approach eternity and for how we conduct our lives. In fact, what the text reveals to us is that God's people are set apart to dwell in God's presence and to pursue godly character. God's people, you and I, if you are a believer, you and I are set apart to dwell with him and to pursue godly character. And so we're going to start with the question that David asks here in verse 1, where he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? What we see David asking here, what we see David doing here is desiring God's presence. And we too should desire God's presence. If we don't have it, we long for it. And if we recognize that we are in God's presence, then we can't get enough of it. We want more. Now, how do we know that David is talking about God's presence here? Well, the tent, he's talking about sojourning in his tent. And that tent, that word could also be translated as tabernacle or sanctuary. What that word actually means is dwelling place. That's the actual Hebrew word means dwelling place. And you have to remember the context of when David's writing. The temple had not been built yet. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, did not dwell in every believer as he does today. In fact, from a timing standpoint, it's believed that David wrote this shortly after the Ark of the Covenant had returned to Jerusalem and been placed back into the tent. And so David's looking at this tent where God's presence resides. That tent was the most direct representation in the Old Testament of where God's presence resided. And it's on the holy hill, it says, on your holy hill, which is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's where the tent was erected. That's where people, God's people would come to worship. So God's presence at that time dwelt in that tent on that hill. And then some other key words that we have here is, is he uses the word sojourn. Now, this is a term that's typically associated with or implies some sort of a foreigner, but it, more, more specifically, a foreigner who's become a resident. A resident alien is what it is. And so there's this idea of permanence. He also uses the word dwell, which has the element of permanence to it. And the reason I think that's important is because David's not just talking about entering into God's presence or accessing God. It's much more than that. He's talking about remaining in God's presence, living in God's presence, residing in God's presence. It's both entering in and remaining in God's presence. And while David poses this as a question, I think that David is actually more worshipful or celebratory than he is curious. Now, we don't know exactly what David's tone is, but uh, what we know is that David's looking at this tent where God's presence resides. The, the ark has been returned, and he's saying, God, here you are. What should your people do? How should we respond to your presence? It's not that David doubts God's presence. It's that he longs for it. And we would do well to echo David's desire and longing for God's presence by asking similar questions. We should ask God, how can we enter your presence? How can we even stand before you? And how do we remain once we are there? 
Now the answer to those questions is fundamentally the same, actually. The answer, and we'll find this here in verses 2 through 5, is that we pursue righteousness. We pursue righteousness. We enter God's presence by pursuing righteousness. We stand in God's presence by being righteous. We remain in God's presence by continuing to pursue righteousness. Now, the way, that, the way in which that looks, how that applies, that changes a little bit based on how we are asking the question. Are we asking about access? How do I get to God? Or how do I conduct myself in God's presence? So we're going to look first at this question of accessing or entering God's presence. How do we pursue the righteousness that gets us into God's presence? How can we even enter? This is simply the same as asking, how do I get to heaven? Well, David tells us here. He tells us what it takes for us personally to pursue the righteousness that gains us access to God. And the answer is fairly simple. All you need to do is to comply with these guidelines in verses 2 through 5. So if you follow along with me, all you need to do is be blameless. Always do the right thing. Always know what is true. Don't ever slander anyone. Don't do wrong to anyone. Honor other believers. Despise evil. Always keep your word and your promises and value other people more than money or possessions. That's it. In other words, you just need to obey what Jesus described as the two greatest commandments, to love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. So who's in? Right? Who's in? Who is worthy to access God? Not this guy. And if any of you is tempted to say yes, you're either lying or you're deceived, which means you're violating one of those in some way or form. None of us meets this requirement. Yes, church, that is bad news. Right? The standard is high. The standard is perfection. We're talking about a holy and righteous and just and perfect God. And none of us can meet that standard. None of us is worthy to enter God's presence. But what if... What if we could still gain access through someone else's worthiness? What if someone else who does have access, who does meet those requirements, who is worthy, could escort us into God's presence, could give us their identity so that we could gain access? You know, it's not, uh, well, we should all be familiar with having to uh, gain access to somewhere, right? Sometimes you have to have a, a ticket to get into a, a movie theater or a concert, or some of you probably work in places where you have to have a clearance to get into certain spaces. And you always hear these funny stories of people who will try to get in somewhere and they say, do you know who I am? And that rarely works, as far as I know, unless it works for you. But what usually works more often than do you know who I am is I know so-and-so. Right? I know this person. I know somebody. Um, I know some of you can relate to this, but uh, one, at one time, probably multiple times, when I was in the military, uh, I left my ID card right in my office, and I live off base. I lived off base. And so the next morning, I'm going to get back on base, and I don't have my ID card, and they're not going to just let me in because I say that they should let me in. 
right? I, I promise that's who I am. That's not how it works. So what did they have to do? They had to call somebody that I work with, somebody else, to come to the gate and to, to vouch for me or really to escort me onto the base. So essentially, what happened was they were letting me in, letting me on base, giving me access based on somebody else's merit and identity. And if you haven't figured that out, where I'm going with this church, that's what Jesus does for us. He lived that perfect life. He met those requirements. He is worthy. He imputes that worthiness and perfection. That means that he takes it and, and puts it on us. His identity, his worthiness and his, his perfection, it, that, that identity, it covers or actually it replaces our own identity. So it's not like he just lets us borrow his ID card. He gives us a new one. And that identity is him. It's his righteousness. It's his blamelessness. So when God looks on us, he doesn't see our filthy rags. He sees the righteousness of Christ. It's a miracle. It's literally a miracle. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3.9. He says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He says, I, I can't be right based on obeying the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So if the bad news is that we can never meet the requirements to enter God's presence, the good news is that Jesus has met those requirements. So what we do is we pursue righteousness first through the person and the work of Jesus. We pursue righteousness through the person and the work of Jesus. Instead of earning our own righteousness, he, Jesus says, here, take mine. And church, I know we don't uh, do this very often in the middle uh, of a sermon, but I think that this here is a great opportunity for us to pause and commemorate this truth. I think this is the perfect time for us to come to the Lord's table in remembrance and celebration of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Now, we're not done. Okay, we're certainly not done with the message. We still have a lot to cover. In fact, we have a lot of pretty heavy application that we're going to get at. But I just think we should take this time to remember and celebrate the fact that we even have access to God. Now church, as we move forward, I want us to, to understand that the person and the work of Jesus doesn't stop there with simply granting us access to God. As if we'll enter his tent one day. Rather, Jesus enables us to experience the presence of God every day. Think about the beauty of what God has done for us. David, when he wrote this psalm, he and his Old Testament counterparts, they would occasionally experience these glimpses of God's presence outside the tent. Or they, or they would look at the tent or the ark or the tabernacle, the temple, and, and, and they would know that God's presence is there. But they couldn't go in. Only the priest could go in. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So they, they constantly had to ask, Oh God, how can we enter into your presence? They longed to go into the tent. 
But we, church, we have this tremendous blessing and privilege as new covenant believers where God didn't just say, okay, because of Jesus, you can come to my tent. He doesn't say, well, now you can come visit me every Sunday. No, Jesus, Jesus flipped this idea on its head. Instead of us lining up to enter into the tent, into his presence, what God did is he brought his presence to us. In the person of Jesus, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. David, when he asked this question, his question was, how can we come into your presence? And by the time we get to, to us, God's answer is, how about I come to you? John uses this same language in, 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 in John 1 verse 14 where he talks about how he came and dwelt among us. That word is the same word as tent or tabernacle. It actually says that he tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling among us. He still does. Paul mentions it a number of times. Three times he tells the Corinthians. He tells Timothy. He writes it in Romans 8. John writes about it in 1 John that, that those who belong to God are filled with his spirit. Church, do you understand the great blessing and privilege that is? That if we call ourselves believers, if we call ourselves Christians, we don't just believe that one day we will be in God's presence. We'll be there one day. We believe the promise that we are in God's presence every day. And if we live in his presence, how then should we conduct ourselves? Should we not still strive for godliness? Should we not still strive to live according to God's word? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'll just be transparent. One of the things that kind of drives me crazy is when, when Christians don't have a desire to live as if they are in God's presence. Instead, we often, we sulk in our depravity and we use it as an excuse to continue in our sin. We, oh, I'm such a horrible person. We're all just so bad. We'll never be any good. Now look, I, I have no problem with the doctrine of depravity. Okay, we are all depraved people who desperately need Jesus, and that's not changing anytime soon. But let me, let me remind you of what Paul said in Romans 6. Right, at the end of Romans 5, he talks about the righteousness that we have in Christ. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he asks that famous question, What then? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? He asks, right, since Christ met the requirement for us, does that mean we're off the hook to live according to God's standards? And what's his answer? By no means. By no means. And when David wrote this psalm, he was asking, how should God's people, resp how should God's people respond to his presence? And his answer in verses 2 through 5 is that they, they, they pursue godly character. So not only do we pursue righteousness through the work of Jesus, but once we have that, we pursue godly character. Yes, we are only made righteous through Jesus. But once we are made righteous, we continue to pursue that by pursuing godliness through godly character. If we are in fact living in God's presence, 
shouldn't our lives reflect that? There's a couple times in my life I've lived with somebody. I've lived with a, a family. Before I was married, uh, when I was in the military for a while, and then when I was in college as well, uh, there was a mentor of mine, both times different, different people, and I moved in with their family. And when I moved in with their family, do you know whose standards of conduct I had to live by? Theirs. Do you know why? Because it was their house. Right? And then when I, if, if, if I messed up, if I didn't live according to their standards or expectations, they didn't just say, oh, you know what, Brian, why don't you just make your own? What if we did that with our kids? Right? Well, I know you're not going to live up to all of the standards and expectations we set for you, so why don't you actually just set your own? Right? It's ridiculous. Yet I think that's the way that we treat God too often. We love the thought that he would give us access to his house, but then we treat that privilege lightly. We say, thanks for the keys, and then we act like some rebellious, ungrateful teenager who wants all the privileges but none of the responsibility. Not that any of our teenagers do that. I did. You can ask my mom. If she tells you otherwise, she's just being nice. In fact, we often get offended or we get too defensive when we start talking about how Christians should behave or, or, or do's and don'ts of Christianity. We start accusing people of works-based faith or legalism. And don't get me wrong, we do need to be careful about legalism, okay? I, we've talked about how we are made righteous. But the Bible does teach us over and over again that God has expectations of how his people should live. I'm not saying that we can earn our salvation. We can't. But the Bible does say that we should work out our salvation. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In fact, the Bible is full. It's full of exhortations and commands for God's people to pursue godliness and godly character. Over and over again, believers are told to put on Christ and become like him. If you look at Colossians 3, I remember preaching on that last year, and one of the things that was so striking is that as we're told to put on our new self, that new self is Christ. We're just putting on him and his identity. Here's just a few examples of, of, the, of some of these scriptures. They're, they're all over the place. It's an exhaustive list. It's, we could spend all morning just looking at places in, in, in God's word. But here's some of the ones that I thought were most pointed. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Ephesians 4, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. 1 Peter, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And as we heard earlier in the scripture reading from Dan, 1 John 2, walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, as we look at this screen, as we look at those verses, what I want us to understand is that we are called to not only trust in Christ. Now, that's first. If you don't know Christ, start there. The righteousness that we are given from Christ is first. 
But once you have trusted in Christ, we are called to be like Christ. And so what I want to do now is I want to take some time for us to go back through verses 2 through 5. And we're going to look at it from a different perspective. I don't want us to look at it from the perspective of what do I need to do to earn my way into God's presence. I want us to look at this from the perspective of what is the godly character that I am to pursue now that God has granted me access into his presence. Now that I am in his presence, what should I do? So let's start here in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. Godly character starts with discerning the truth of right from wrong. Now I purposely said here that we discern from right and wrong. The, the verse says do what is right and we are to do what is right. But I want us to understand that we can't do what is right if we don't understand what is right. So how do we discern right from wrong? How do we distinguish what is right and wrong? Because the world tells us all kinds of things and it changes every day. So I ask you, how do you determine what is right and wrong? Your answer should be related to the, the, the second part of this verse. He speaks the truth in his heart. Speaking truth in your heart. We know and we do what is right when we have the truth in our heart. And church, where does the truth come from? It comes from God. Most, most fully revealed in his word. We, God's word must be in your heart. Read it. Meditate on it. Pray over it. The truth of God needs to be in our heart for us to be able to determine what is right and wrong. And then, yes, we are to do those things that we find to be right. And I understand that some of us look at the Bible and it isn't, the black and white words don't always tell me exactly what is right and exactly what is wrong in every single specific situation. But you know what God's word does do? It reveals the nature and the character of God. And as you begin to know God and love God and understand his nature and his character and who he is, that helps you to discern and determine what is right and wrong. And so speaking of God's word and forming right and wrong... The next few verses expands on that and gives us some more specifics of that. Look at verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Godly character is loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It starts with talking about slander. Let's talk about slander, church. Slander is a cancer. And it's infecting our world and it's infecting our church. It's when we speak poorly of others. When we speak down about people and we speak bad about people, particularly when we do it behind their back. And I hear it all the time. I hear people do it, whether I'm uh, here or other places, you hear it happen. I see it all over Facebook. We're guilty of it. Right? I, I see how horribly and how terribly we talk about people and how stupid people are and how horrible people are. 
And we even do it in the church. We take these secondary or unimportant issues and we, we turn them into these things that we slander people over. Do you participate in that? If not, do you do anything about it? When you, when you hear somebody else slandering someone, do we, do we take a moment to say, hey, 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 let's, how about we just pray for that person instead? Slander is ungodly and we need to stop it. And I get it, church. We are called to speak the truth to people. We're called to correct people and to rebuke people. I got that. And I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm just saying we don't have to be so mean about it all the time. And we certainly don't need to do it behind people's back when we're just talking about how bad people are and how they don't understand and all this stuff. And we slander people behind their back. We talk to them and we do it in a loving way. We respect them. Throughout Proverbs, we're told to watch our tongue and how our tongue can hurt people. Ephesians 4.29 talks about not having any corrupting talk in your mouth and how we should build one another up and that our, our speech should even, have, uh, should even give grace to people. It talks about reproach in here, which is, it, it, it's similar to slander. It's a little bit more like gossip or blame, but it's just this idea of speaking poorly about people and, and to people talking about them behind their back and disrespectfully. We should be seeking to treat people as brothers or sisters or as fellow heirs of God's kingdom or even if they're unbelievers, as people who are made in God's image. And it's just not just our words, but it says, do no evil to your neighbor. How do we treat others? Are you kind and compassionate? Do we, do we demonstrate the love of Christ to people? How we treat people matters, and it matters to God. And we should treat people and we should speak to people the way that we, wanted to be treat, that we want to be treated and spoken to. It's called the golden rule for a reason. And then we look at verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Godly character gives greater honor to fellow believers. It gives greater honor to fellow believers. This concept of despise, it's a pretty harsh term, but what it really means is, is to give us a preference towards someone or something else. So what the verse is saying is that we give honor or we give preference to Christian brothers and sisters. Now that doesn't mean that we treat unbelievers poorly, and that's not what it's saying. But we need to be careful with who we give the greatest honor in our lives. Who has the greatest influence in your life? Who do we look up to? So who has the greatest influence in your life? Who do you honor? Who do you value? And where does that come from? Does it come from Facebook? Does it come from the media, God forbid? Friends? Maybe it's a coworker, or maybe your boss. It could be family members. It could be your pastors. Who has influence? Who do you honor and who do you value? And then when you're thinking about those people, I, I want you to ask this question. Are those mentors, those heroes of ours, are they God-fearing men and women? Or are they vile? And the word vile simply means rejected. And being rejected by God is simply one who has not been 
given the righteousness of Christ or who has not received the righteousness of Christ. So who do we honor? We give greater honor to those who fear the Lord. And then we get to the second part of verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I like the NIV's translation here. It actually says, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Godly character means keeping your word and your promises. Godly character is keeping your word and your promises. I'd love to skip this one, church, because this one gets me worked up. Right? This one gets me angry because this is a sin that is everywhere and it's devastating in our society. We see this all the time. We do it ourselves and we don't even realize it, but we do not keep our word. We do not keep our promises. We won't commit to anybody or anything. We tell someone that we're going to do something and then we don't do it. And we're so flippant about it. Oh, I forgot. My bad. Oh, I'm sorry. Something else came up. Really? What else came up? Something more important? Somebody more important? Something more fun? We don't keep our word. This is, this is like me telling Crispin over here, hey, yo, you need some yard work done on Saturday? I'm there. I got you. And then not showing up. He counted on me. But something else came up, right? Some football game to watch or some friends to hang out with. We also are very non-committal. We live in this society of instant gratification and pleasure. And so we're always just waiting for the next best thing to come up and we go jump on that. This would be like me, Crispin asking me to help him with some yard work on Saturday and I tell him, maybe, I'll let you know. And it's not because I really have something I need to check on. Sometimes that's true. But it's because I'm just hoping that something else comes up. Something better to do than do yard work, right? But, and I'm using that example, but we do this all the time and we see this in our lives all the time. Yeah, I'll try to be there. Okay, I'll come. Oh, sorry, yeah, something else came up. We need to take our word seriously, church. Keep your word even when it is inconvenient or uncomfortable or sacrificial. Our word needs to mean something. I'm not saying that this, is, that this one is more important than these others, but I am saying that if I could challenge you to leave here today and apply something right away, I think it would be this. Be a man or a woman of your word. And then verse 5. Who does not put out his money in interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Godly character values people over possessions or money. Godly character values people over possessions or money. Now this is an interesting one. It's talking about interest and bribes. It's not talking about mortgages and car loans. Okay, it's, it, the, the Jews actually had a law that they couldn't charge each other interest, but they could charge interest to foreigners. What it's saying is that, what David's saying is this is not about taking, uh, just charging interest. This is about not taking advantage of others. It's about giving to and, and helping others with no strings attached. When you help somebody, what's your heart attitude? 
Is it because you want something in return? Is it because you want recognition? Is your financial gain more important than helping someone else? I think we need to be willing to put our money and our possessions in God's hands when we're helping others. After all, it's his anyways, right? He gave it to us. And so when we help others, we're putting it in his hands. I've got a friend who just, this guy loves to help everybody all the time. And even when he's buying things for himself or with his own money, he's constantly thinking, how can I use this to help other people? Maybe I'll buy more or a bigger one or a better one. Not because I want one, but because I'm going to use this to help other people. And anytime somebody breaks something or loses something or doesn't bring it back, you know what he says? It's God's anyways. It's a great attitude to have. And then what about taking bribes? You might be thinking about, you know, hush money or somebody asking you to, you know, to do something, a direct bribe. But I think there's more to this. It's the question of, can your integrity be bought? Do you care where the money comes from? Maybe somebody's asking you to do something ungodly at work and you know you shouldn't do it, but you know what? They sure do pay me a lot and I don't want to mess with that. Maybe it's from friends or somebody else or some other place where you're getting pressure to do something that you know you shouldn't do, but you really like the benefits. What is your integrity worth? Some other ways we do this indirectly as well, right? This, this, this attitude of, well, I'm good. My finances are okay. I'm secure. That's their problem. Look, church, I'm not saying that you need to leave here today and go give all your money to homeless people. That's not what I'm saying. What, what, what I believe David is saying is he's talking about your security and if your financial or material security is more important than caring for, loving, and serving others. Godly character values people. Now, I want to remind you that what we looked at here in verses 2 through 5, this isn't, it's not exhaustive. But I think it's a great place for, for people like us who are, want to, who's striving to be Christ-like. If we, if we are, in fact, pursuing godly character, this psalm is a great place to sort of take a personal survey. Not because these things make us a Christian, but because these things set us apart as Christians. These are the marks of a godly man or a woman. They're the marks of a person who dwells with God, a mature Christian. I know a lot of people have issues when we start talking about rules or do's and don'ts of Christianity, and I, and I understand the reservations about that. But we don't often have an issue with somebody saying, do you believe that we should grow in our faith? Do you believe that we should mature in our faith? Of course we should. Well, these are the marks of somebody who is mature or grown in their faith. These are also the marks of a person who finds their security not in the world, but in God's presence. In fact, David concludes the psalm with these words about security. He says, He who does these things shall never be moved. God's people are secure in God's presence. 
We should be secure in God's presence. There's a number of things we could say about stability and security that comes with living in the presence of God. David wrote about it often in the Psalms. What I want us to see is first that when we trust in that imputed righteousness of Jesus for our salvation, when we understand that we have access to God only through him, then there is stability and security of our eternal destiny. We know where we're going. And when we are secure in our eternal destiny, then we are free to live for Christ. Because we know where we're going. We know who we belong to. And no one can snatch us from his hand and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our position is secure, church. It can't be moved. And we can be sure of our foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And that cornerstone isn't going anywhere. And beyond that, we can build on that foundation. I love the the parable of the the two builders, especially the way it's written here in Luke 6. It starts with, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. When we pursue godly and righteous character, when we obey the words of God as we've discussed in this psalm, and when we obey the commands of Christ, we are building on the foundation that was laid. And when we do that, When we do that, not only is our eternal destiny affected, but it affects our whole perspective on life. When we begin to live for God, when we pursue godliness, then our joy, our identity, our hope, our confidence, those things become tied up in God and godly things rather than in the world and worldly things, which are easily shaken and moved. If you pursue righteousness... If you pursue righteousness first through faith in Christ and also through a pursuit of godliness, then those things, your identity, your joy, your hope, your eternal destiny, your access to God's presence will never be moved, will never be shaken. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the great promises of your word. We thank you, God, for the promise of your presence. We thank you that through the work of Jesus, through his work and his work alone, that we are worthy to look into your face, that we are worthy to stand before your throne, that we are worthy to come into your presence only through your son. Thank you, God, for sending your son. And God, we also pray that you would empower us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us to walk in your ways. 
God, I pray that we would walk out of here today and that we would have a desire to become more like you, not so that we could just say, look at me and look at who I am, but so that we could say, look at you and look at who you are. And we pray that our lives would honor you and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.